Hello and welcome to Sanfor Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. Today, I'm excited to welcome Cash Sajadi. Cash, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. Great. So yeah, please just go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Well, thank you for the opportunity. So my name is Jose Cash Sajadi. I work at Cloud66. We founded Cloud66 back in 2012. Primarily, my background is software. I've been doing this for for the past 10 years, I've been saying for the past 20 years. So I think that makes it 30, right? So as you can tell, I'm an old timer in our industry and I've primarily worked, started with electronics and then moved to software pretty early on. Most of my career I spent in the banks, mostly investment banks. And then from there, I immediately switched over as soon as the banks went down in 2008. I switched over to starting my own company and that's been my story so far. Great. Before we continue, can you tell us a bit more about what your company is working on and uh, what's next for you guys? Oh, that's great. Sure. Yeah. So we started Cloud Success because we had a problem ourselves we wanted to solve and they kind of pivoted like any other startup that you kind of have this product market fit and you realize you have to pivot. So we started with something that we used to call App Store for data centers. The idea behind it is, was that we used to do the same thing over and over again at every job, you know, from authentication to cron jobs to all those things that you keep doing every time you start a new job, you have to kind of take care of. So what we thought is like mobiles back then were very new, 2008, 2009, you know, it was like mobile phones were very, very new. And the concept of app store was just coming out. So we thought, why don't we build an app store, but this time for the servers? So you could go to our application, back then it was called, it had a different name. You would go to our application and choose your server and choose the apps that you wanted to install on it. We rolled it out with about 10 or 20 apps. And one of those apps was to install a full stack Rails backend onto a server. So like any other company that wants to look at the usage of the product, we looked at the metrics and that app was the only one that was taking a lot of heat and a lot of traction. So we dropped everything else off when we focused only on that and we changed the company to be called Cloud66. And now what we do is exactly that. We deploy any application for you from your source code on your own servers on any cloud with us taking care of the DevOps for you. So you can think of us as DevOps as a service. We've been doing this since 2012. We rolled out our first Rails specific product in 2013. And since then we added Node, then we went for containers, so you can put any application in there. Then we did support for Kubernetes. And now we are just, as you said, what's next for us? We are now getting into Jamstack and static websites rollout and deployment on your own buckets, S3 or otherwise buckets and servers. Hey, everyone. Sanford has published an open source book called CI-CD with Docker and Kubernetes. It combines just the right amount of best practices and practical advice for shipping cloud-native apps. Download your free copy today at sanfordci.com. You mentioned as Rails was, which happened maybe roughly 10 years ago, was a big thing back then. During prep call, we also talked about some new things happening in the Rails 6 and the stack which is surrounding it. And there is a lot of movement in that part, maybe just closer to the front-end side of Rails stack generally and things. So yeah, I want to share maybe some of your thoughts. You have seen a lot. You mentioned that you're in industry for 30 years. 
So regarding these technologies, what is the hype? What is real? What is practical? What is what is not? Well, I mean, one thing that you know, being in this industry for such a long time, pretty much any industry, I'd say, is makes you cynical or skeptical. And I totally understand that. You know, you kind of you hang around long enough, you see the same thing come again and again and again. Like every time, everybody gets excited about this, and you just think, well, no, well, we have seen this before. So it's kind of like sitting at a merry-go-round. You just keep seeing the same thing going again. So this happened to us as well. We started, as I said, you know, with Rails. When I started this company, I didn't have any Rails experience. I had some Rails experience from working in a startup right after I left banking. I wasn't coding. I didn't have any experience with Rails. And Rails back then was a very new technology, exciting. You know, everything was like integrated. There was a very strong opinion imposed upon it. So you kind of had recipes almost built for you that you could do, this is the way you do models, this is the way you do views, and this is how you kind of bind them together. So Rails was very exciting in terms of a lot of decisions and how to build a scalable, reliable, secure web application. All of those decisions were almost made for you. All you had to do was just like fill it up with business logic. And it was very exciting. You know, coming from other frameworks, you could see how exciting it could be from PHP or other things around that. And that's obviously a long time ago. As we started doing Rails more and more and rolling out a product for Rails, one thing that helped us quite a lot was the opinionated nature of this framework. What we could do is to say, if you want to deploy a Rails application, yes, there's a lot of work that you have to do in terms of preparing the servers, making sure that you have all the different Linux packages depending on what you want to use. But ultimately, if you look at a Rails code base, you can almost tell where you would be expecting to find a specific thing. Whereas my database configuration, you pretty much can tell where you can find it. If you just arrive at the Rails repository without any background about the thing, you can pretty much tell where I cannot find my initializer, where I cannot find my controllers. It's very opinionated in that sense. And that helps you, as you can imagine, with deployment because you can you know, know where to put things and where to lift them and where you move them. When we rolled out Rails, we had a lot of customers who had other frameworks, adjacent frameworks, I would say, using with it. And back then, which is what, like seven years ago, Rails was primarily serving web and mobile was served mostly, the back end of mobile was served with Node. So as you can imagine, we had a lot of customers who had their Node deployed some other way and then the Rails deployed with Cloud 66. They used to come to us and say, can I have one dashboard for both of this? Because technically it's the same application. It's one for the backend for the mobile, one for the web. So we thought, why not? Let's just foray into the node world. And that was the beginning of a interesting journey. As you can imagine, everybody's got their own framework. That, that's the best framework since sliced bread. And node suffers from a great fragmentation of these frameworks. There are some that are very popular, some that become very popular and really ride the hype, like Meteor, for example, ironic with the name, you know, they just crash. I mean, I don't know where it is now. And then there are some that are specific for certain purposes. For example, recently, if you think about Jamstack and static websites like Gatsby, for example, is one that's very popular now with that. So we went out and we tried to replicate what we did for Rails, for Node. But the challenge here is that you don't have just one Rails. You have a lot of different node frameworks, each with their own very strong opinions. I think we did a good job in rolling out a node product, kind of replicates a success with Rails. But in doing so, what we had to do was we had to put them into containers. 
we had to look for a solution that we could just get this whatever framework of node that is, put it into a container that fits its own opinion, and then take anything that's outside of the container. And while our node product is not as popular as our Rails product, primarily because the popularity is moderated by the popularity of the underlying frameworks that it supports, we stumbled upon by accident almost, the same way that we stumbled upon Rails product by accident, that containers can help a lot of our customers pretty much bring anything they want into this. So then we went on to rolling out our container product, what we call Maestro, the version one, first version of a Maestro product, which basically says, bring your code. You can tell us how to package it into a container. Then we build the entire stack that you need to run this container in production, whether it's storage, networking, firewalls, load balance, everything that you need to get these containers out into production. That product became really popular. That is back in 2014, where we rolled this out. Back then, there was a big fight, as you can imagine, was going on between two other non-node, but yet still popular and somewhat controversial frameworks. There was Kubernetes, which was this project started by Google, and they were trying to dump it onto a company called Docker. And Docker was not taking it. They were very excited about another thing they were working on called Swarm. Then you had an open source project called Mesos, and it was a company called Mesosphere that was trying to do their own thing that was bigger than containers. It was about everything. I would say about maybe six months to a year later, HashiCorp rolled out Nomad, which was supposed to be the replacement for Kubernetes or something similar to that. So you can imagine there's like a lot of another menu of all these things that was out there. We looked at pretty much all of those, obviously all of them at the beginning, and somewhat we decided that from a technological point of view, from a support point of view, it's best for us to bet everything on Kubernetes. I think that was the right decision for us with hindsight. We cannot claim that much credit for it back then. We did that based on technical merit. We didn't know about the politics behind it, but somewhat we were right. So we replaced the engine in Maestro, which was homemade. We built the whole thing because again, back then there was pretty much nothing with Kubernetes. And that became Maestro version two. So now what we had was we started with a very opinionated product, Rails. We went on to Node, which was a lot of different frameworks. Everybody had their own personal favorite framework. Then we went on to another phase of consolidating all those into containers. So thinking, you know, all different Node frameworks, they can be just unified in one container. Then from that unification, we went into another explosion of different types of container management then we consolidated again into Kubernetes. So you can see like these explosions and consolidations and explosions and consolidations until we settled on Kubernetes and bring anything you want. You put it into a container, whether it be a Docker or any other kind of container, and then we put it on Kubernetes. Now, as you can imagine, this is kind of a, like a long journey. That is like now 2009, 2015, 2016. And you have a product that takes your code, takes your cloud, credentials, builds a Kubernetes cluster for you, then deploys everything onto it. One thing was missing, however. Our customers and our clients are software developers. They're application developers. They're not ops people. They couldn't care less, frankly, how their application is run. As long as we run it for them on their own cloud, on their own servers that they choose because of other business reasons, we run it reliably, securely, and make it available. And 
as long as we do that, if we had a room full of monkeys running it or Kubernetes version latest, they don't care. And that was kind of a, an interesting discovery for us because all the time, every day we talk to application developers who are customers, we have a lot of customers, pretty much 95% of them are application developers. And they talk to us about Kubernetes. They talk to us about Docker and containers, but ultimately what they want to do is to run their application. Now, it is somewhat difficult while you're in that conversation to distinguish between the application requirements and operations requirements because the conversation is about like everything, right? So one of the things that we realized is that when every cloud provider is rolling out their own Kubernetes, managed Kubernetes, GKE, AKS, EKS, there's plenty. Every cloud provider now, they have their own. And when everyone's trying to build some sort of ops product around it, the opportunity for us is to build a devs product for it, essentially making ops disappear for developers. But instead of doing it with a proprietary technology, do it on what they would have done themselves. It's like if somebody comes, joins your company on day two, and you show them how things are deployed, they wouldn't be able to tell whether it's done by Cloud 66 or somebody in the company has done it. All we do is that we do what you would have done, but we do it more efficiently and we do it 24-7. Now, going back to Rails, that was the interesting twist of all of that. Now we are in 2019, 2020, where there is a hell of a lot of conversation going on about application developers on Node.js frameworks, single page applications, super responsive things. If you have now even client, everybody like writes these React Node.js based applications and they put it into an Electron shell or some other shell and sell it to you as a native application and they run it everywhere. It's like Java again, like, you know, runs right once, run everywhere. This is kind of another thing that you've been around. The same way microservices were like service-oriented architecture, you kind of keep seeing the same thing come around and again. So we had this kind of super responsive, everything needs to run everywhere. Everything needs to be super responsive and native and like all of that. And what we found is that with that being the hype, and being the flavor of the day, Rails is starting to look dated, where it is still about rendering pages on servers. It's still about you know MVC and none of that binding of attributes on an HTML page to a variable and everything else around it. And all of a sudden, you have a change in this whole landscape. The company behind Rails, or people behind Rails, who all of them pretty much work in a company called Basecamp, and a lot of this audience know them. They wanted to roll out another product called Hey, which is an email client, a web-based email client. What they decided that they want to do, they want to do it in Rails. Now, in 2020, you're rolling out an email client that is going to compete with Gmail in a world full of React and your audiences, developers and agencies, and you want to do it in Rails. So what they did is what they do best. They invented the tools that they want to use. So they took Rails to the next step. They kind of refreshed the whole thing, keeping true to the roots about server-side rendering and not sprinkling business logic between server-side, HTML, and JavaScript at the front end, but still delivering that fast speed native experience that everybody is accustomed to. 
Now, these are two stories that I'm telling you in parallel, and it kind of looks a bit jagged. You have the back end and Kubernetes and containers going on, and you have the front end Node.js and, and Rails, and they kind of start to converge now. So on the Rails side, these innovations were happening. They rolled out a new framework called Hotwire, which is a combination of three base products. There's TurboDrive, which is kind of a derivative of TurboLynx. Essentially what it is, it's something that scans your page and looks for the links and caches them, as well as hijacking the links and trying to send the request to the server, get the response back, and then crop out some part of that rendered page and put it onto the front end without the user seeing a full page refresh. There is another part called Stimulus, which is based on Stimulus.js, which is a very opinionated minimalist JavaScript framework that doesn't bring the whole form of like jQuery or Vue or anything else into it. And there's a third part called Strata, which is not released fully to the public yet, that I'm very excited about, and that's about the native mobile experience of all this. Now, they rolled that out, and they used it in a real-world application, like their email client called Hey, and that reinvigorated the entire Rails space. Now, you can create applications with Rails that feel like you know, what you would get from React without all the craziness that you would expect from the complexity of maintaining a React application if you're not Facebook itself. And that's where we're seeing everything now. So it's kind of like for a long time, we rolled out a bunch of things that were about application developers focusing on unpinated stack based on Rails. And Rails was getting dated and kind of feeling old. While what happened in the end was Rails kind of got a very big upgrade and update. And now we can deploy Rails exactly the same way that we were doing with our very first product, but on new technologies like Kubernetes to make it from a server side completely scalable and deploy it out. So what you're getting is because you're relying more on Rails, because you're relying more on server side rendering, and if you deploy it on Kubernetes, you get the whole reliability of Kubernetes and containers without you knowing that it's running on Kubernetes. But then on the front end, you have the experience of view and a Node.js kind of experience. So again, after the explosion of all the containers and Kubernetes and everything else, we're consolidating around putting Rails on top of Kubernetes, which is kind of like all of our journey in the past seven years kind of yielded into this consolidation of the very first product that we had on top of all the experience that we gained from Kubernetes and containers and all of that with a flavor that delivers you the Node.js experience that everybody's talking about in React and Vue while those products are not in the picture anymore. So it was a very arduous kind of journey to get to where we are. Hey, I'm going to take a quick break here and tell you that Sanford has a new book out called CI/CD with Docker and Kubernetes. If you are looking to deploy cloud-native apps, it's going to show you the most productive way of doing that. And the best of all, it's free. Download your free copy today at sanforci.com. I understand when you refer that, yes, there were two stories running in parallel, but you presented it nicely, so it was easy to follow. You mentioned in the beginning how it's easy to get ironic. But yeah, when you spent almost a decade working on something and the circle completes and you end up doing what you were doing, okay, it's an upgraded experience and, you know, a bit different what's running, but it is, as you said, kind of the same. Great. Nicely told. I wanted to ask about that stack for the DevOps part of things that you were mentioning. 
So at some point, containers really helped with solving that Node.js fragmentation. And then you had to build out orchestration engine and scheduler and whatnot, you know. And then when those couple of competing products in that space. Okay, today it is kind of obvious Kubernetes is a winner. How do you see that space and Kubernetes being the winner right now? There are lots of good things about Kubernetes, both from a technology point of view. But I think when it comes to a winning technology, it's not that much about the technology, but about what's around technology. What makes a technology win in the space? If I wanted to kind of step back and have a look at what we did, what everybody else has done, and what made Kubernetes win, there's a lot of different things around it. A bunch of it is around open source nature of it. And not just the fact that it is open source, but the fact that the company behind it doesn't make money directly from that open source project. If you look around, the most successful open source projects that you see are the ones that the biggest company behind it is not the one that makes direct money from it. And that what makes it a winning combination because you don't have the commercial forces around that. It's essentially, it's not open source as a marketing tactic. It's open source because it just deserves to be open. And Kubernetes was one of that. Now, this is not to say that Google is doing it out of good of their heart. Obviously, there are lots of commercial considerations behind it, but Google is not making all of its money from this. Essentially, if you want to think about it the other way, if you look at, for example, Mesosphere, which is now called, I think, DCHQ or some other obscure name, that company raised an extraordinary amount of VC money, essentially subsidizing a very complex product and commercializing it. And they made money solely based on that. And that made the whole project not very successful, as you can see now. Same happened with Docker and Docker Inc. And a lot of companies go through the same thing, whether it's their own doing or whether some other cloud provider comes and you know just rolls it out themselves, whether it's Redis, Elasticsearch, or whatever, all of this noise that's going around the open source. So that's one on the Kubernetes side that it was that nature, the company behind it was not making all of its money from just that product. There's a lot about the design and the way that it looks at infrastructure, the way that it has a descriptive approach to infrastructure as opposed to a prescriptive approach. It's kind of like it looks at the picture of a cake and says, make me this. And if something you take away a slice from that cake, it takes away a slice from your cake, as opposed to a recipe of a cake where you go from like add the flour, add sugar, and then you just you know, follow the steps one, two, three, four. And if you stop in the middle, if the step five fails, you're going to have to somehow separate flour and sugar and start over again or chuck it all of it out, which is impossible. And that was the prescriptive approach was the puppet and chef's approach. And they had a lot of padding around it to make it possible to separate the flour and sugar, but you know it never happened very well. As opposed to Kubernetes, when you kind of say, this is my desired world, this is my utopia, infrastructure utopia, can you make the real world look like my desired world? And it constantly has this loop that looks at it and changes that to make it look like that. So there's the technology side. The whole design is a slightly different. And that's another great thing about it. And the third best thing about Kubernetes that happened was the governance. The way that Kubernetes put a very iron grip through CNCF, which is this cloud native foundation that they have, and through Google's force to make Kubernetes a unique and uniform experience, having certificates for the vanilla upstream Kubernetes. You don't have multiple flavors of Kubernetes. So even if 
Amazon rolls it out, they have to roll it out the way it, Google rolls it out, the way you know, Microsoft Azure rolls it out, the way DigitalOcean rolls it out. And that's another great experience for people because you learn once and you apply it multiple times. So these are the good things about it. The bad things about it are not necessarily Kubernetes' fault, but it's just the nature of the beast. It's a very complex piece of technology that is trying to revolutionize not only the way infrastructure runs, but it will affect the way development is happening. You don't just say, you know, get your code to this Kubernetes as we used to just put it into VMs. Back in the day when we were working on servers, we had a room with power and air conditioning and a bunch of servers with blinking blue lights on it, and we would deploy to that. One day, all of it changed. Our ops team decided that they want to go VMware, and they bought vSphere, and they changed all the physical servers into virtual. For me as a developer, that didn't make any difference. I still would, you know, smells and feels like a server, it might as well be server. I couldn't even tell a lot of times whether it's a virtual or a physical one. So that didn't change the way I worked as an application developer. Working with infrastructure on Kubernetes or containers makes a big difference to the way that I as a developer work. And what this means is that you have this new piece of technology that doesn't just need buy-in and adoption from ops guys, but it needs a lot of buy-in from developers. What it has turned out to be is that because it's so complex and it needs so many different people working together in harmony to make it happen and use it and benefit from it, apart from just the ego exercise for some CTO who wants to roll out Kubernetes, is that consultancies thrive in a situation like this. You end up with people who come in with hourly rates and they sort it out for you, whether it's the way you work, whether it's your CI/CD is rolled out, whether it's the way you build images, whether it's the way you develop or manage your disaster recovery. They come and sort it out, they send you a big bill, and they move out. And then tomorrow... God knows what's going to happen. So that's why you see that the products around Kubernetes are not very strong. You don't have many companies, well, I would say any company that is building a product that is around Kubernetes and is successful, with one exception, security. Security is the only area that you can make money from Kubernetes because it sells to people by fear. You don't know what's going to happen. And when something happens, you can always say, well, imagine what would have happened if you didn't have us. So you kind of end up with this kind of like, you're going to have to buy it just because if you don't, something happens and your head's on the stick. So what happens is that you end up with an ecosystem that's thriving. There's a lot of money going around, but there's not many companies. There are tiny, small consultancies that get to 100, 200, 300, 500, 1,000 people based on project. The project is done. They go to, I don't know, Adidas. They roll out Kubernetes cluster for them. Then they come back home and they fire those people and they keep five people to keep out on the cluster and become a managed service provider for them. And that's a sad story. In my opinion, that product is not commoditized yet, the way cloud is commoditized, but this is just the way it is. But going back to what we were doing is kind of like exactly the same thing. For a while, and I'm not going to hide that, for a while we tried to build a product around Kubernetes and we failed from the sense that we wanted to sell that as a package product to our customers and say, you know what, Kubernetes is difficult. We're going to make it easy for you to use this product. But that doesn't work. It doesn't matter how good the product is. The way people have to work has to change and the product cannot change. And that's why consultants do a you know decent job in doing that. 
what we succeeded was taking the technology away, saying that you want to run an application anywhere that wants to run, we run it for you. And if you really want to know, it's running on Kubernetes. But I guess you don't care. All you care about is security, availability, price, all of that stuff. And that's the story that I see on the landscape. One worry that I have about Kubernetes is that Google traditionally has about like maybe two years attention span, whether it's Google Plus, I don't know, Wave, Weave, whatever that was called. You know, they usually put like everything they've got, a trillion dollar company behind something for two years. If it works, it works. It doesn't, you might kill it. And a year ago, there were even talks about killing Google Cloud because one of the founders thought that it's just not working at the level that we're expecting is worth Google's attention. And that's the thing. So they are the force behind this. There's no other big company that's pushing this as an incentive to push it. So yeah, tomorrow, if Google just loses interest because they want to, I don't know, put everything they have behind uh, genetic sequencing of some disease or whatever, that might be the next attention span or AI ethics, they might just pull the plug on Kubernetes. It's not going to die, but you know, there's a lot of it that's going on is down to Google. I don't know if there are many successful stories when that main company behind the open source project pulls a plug, how that project manages. Usually then after that, there is a foundation <laughs> which is formed and then good luck, you know, get money from sponsors and so on. But yeah, for the Kubernetes and Google relationship and all that, there is no other way to tell than just wait. <laughs> I want to bring up something. Because of the ego of CTO, they want to deploy to Kubernetes. So I think it was just last week where um, my partner Sanford said, like, you know, just send a message, like, cheers to all the companies who are up to five people who want to build a UI in React and, you know, GraphQL in something else, and they want to deploy on Kubernetes. <laughs> and to be honest, I also see that relatively often where new companies went into these technologies and there is like in each, let's say, technology stack, there is something which is shiny and looks the best. And then yes, for the orchestration running thing, it's Kubernetes. For the backend, it's GraphQL built in this. And there is a React frontend. And, uh, you know, to run all that on your own, you need a couple people for each of those individual things to be able to run them. Maybe if you have to say something about this area. Yeah, I mean, that's a very true story. There's a different thing looking up to a company that's doing really well when it comes to engineering. There's one thing to look up and aspire to what they're doing exactly what they're doing, as opposed to what are the driving factors behind it. A lot of us, small companies or developers, we look up to Netflix, Spotify, Facebook, Google, multi-million, billion, trillion sometimes dollar companies. We look up and say, Oh, they are running React. Facebook's running React, therefore. And you might be able to pull it off, you know, good on you. But more often than not, what's going to get you as a business is not React. I'll give you a story that's very fresh in my mind because it just happened two weeks ago to us. We have, like lots of other companies, what we have is we have 2FA, two-factor authentication. Around Christmas, you know, if you have a company that does 2FA, you know that around Christmas, people buy new phones. Therefore, the old phone is not there anymore, which means a lot of people get locked out. That happens to us every Christmas. And so what would you do? You put a text message. You say, you know, if you lost your phone, hopefully you haven't lost your phone number. So, you know, in case of emergency, break the glass, push this button, and you get a text, and you can just log in. 
And you know, we are developers. Who would you use for that? Twilio, right? So for about seven years, we do the same thing. Our bill comes out $20 a month because there's about 100 people around the world that use this brick the glass every time. So $20 a month, pretty much we don't even notice. I don't even log in to our Twilio account to see what's going on. Two weeks ago, we started signing up three new signups every minute, which is a lot more than what we usually do. And all of this traffic was coming from Vietnam and Sri Lanka. So immediately we think, what's going on? You know, we our first priority, we have a procedure in cases like this to go through, make sure that our customers' data and source code and everything is safe. That was all always the case, which is great. The next thing we move on is what's going on, right? So immediately we thought, oh, all of the traffic comes from a specific country, a specific area. Therefore, potentially the first thing you look at is click farms on your ads. You know, they, you run ad campaigns, they put it on their website and they get a bunch of people that pay them a very low amount of money to click on these ads. So the site makes money, it makes sense. So what we did immediately before even going to Google Analytics, we just shut down the ads just to make sure we don't like hemorrhaging money. The signups didn't stop. And we investigated more. As we were doing this, obviously we're investigating in, in parallel, we investigated and there's nothing about any ad being compromised. So the next thing we're looking at is looking at the emails. All of them are valid Gmail, mostly email addresses. So we thought, ah, what they're doing is email inbox stuffing. You know, a lot of these fraudsters go and buy compromised accounts, like 50,000 of them, and they go and sign them up on, let's say, 500, maybe 1,000 different services. The poor person who's lost their password or account compromised, they get the inbox blowing up with welcome and drip campaigns and all of that. Now, in the meantime, the fraudsters will go into your bank account. You've been always logging in, say, from China. All of a sudden, somebody logs in from Vietnam and your bank goes, whoa, 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 hang on a second, something's wrong. They send you an email, but that email gets lost in a thousands and thousands of emails. So that's what we call like inbox stuffing. So we thought that's the case because some of those people could get back to us and say, I didn't sign up for this. What's going on? So we thought, ah, that's what's going on. So we stopped our drip campaign just to be a bit helpful. And it didn't stop. And then at the same time, we said, you know what? I'm not a big fan of capture. I really don't like to identify any motorcycles in a, like a you know, block of 99 pictures, but you're going to have to do this. We put a capture in there. It stopped them for three hours and they started again. And I'm thinking, how can you sign up? Like, it turns out that you can pay a company, say in India, like a dollar for a thousand capture results. I mean, I feel for the poor soul who has to do this for a living, but there are companies like that out there. And we are just scratching our head, what's going on? In the meantime, we are getting calls to the company phone number. And the company phone number that we have, you know, it's a SaaS business. The company phone number is not even advertised. I'm like, who's using this? They're calling us. Calls coming in, nobody's behind it. Calls coming in for like 10 times a minute. So the company phone line obviously is provided by Twilio. So for the first time after all this, I log into Twilio and there's a $15,700 bill accumulated for the past three days. So it turns out that what's happening is this. The fraudsters use Twilio to buy premium numbers. Then they use somebody else who uses Twilio and they put those premium numbers as text messages. The text message that we send as the OTP, a one-time password, goes to the premium number. The fraudster gets a bit of money. Twilio makes money both ways. And who loses money? 
raise my hand. So 200,000 like, messages later, we contact Twilio. We say, I think something's going on. We ask for our account to be paused and suspended until we figure out what's going on. And they send us a bunch of links to how to secure your account and all those sort of things. Of all the companies, and we do work with a lot of SaaS providers. We are partners, users, customers, providers to all of those. Everyone who provides something as pay-as-you-go, they have a spend cap. If my Google bill goes above $10,000 a month, they'll stop it or they send me 10 emails, make sure if you reach 50% of your budget, you have 75%. Twilio doesn't have that. And somewhat when they made money from both ends, it kind of makes you wonder whether, not deliberately, but they kind of turn the blind eye, look the other way when something like this is happening, especially from like $20 a month to 15000 in two days. So anyway, we're still going and fighting with them and they're just like treating it like a charity anyway. The point back to using React and Kubernetes, it doesn't matter if you React or Kubernetes. What actually gets you are like the most simple things ever possible. And that's not about technology. It's about like how people behave. You know, it's like cybersecurity. What's the most vulnerable point in your login? People just giving up their passwords for chocolate. It's like whatever you do. The weakest point is always something that as developers, we are blindsided to because we are very much focused and obsessed sometimes with technology. And it's the same thing. You use these technologies that are built for large companies doing great things at a scale that is nowhere near what we are up to. That's great. But it's not always in the best interest of what you want to do as a business. A lot of times you have to focus on making sure that your SMS messages are secure as opposed to that you have less than 10 millisecond response time on an HTML tribute. When we talk with our most successful customers, their technology stacks are the least interesting. <laughs> I like my technology is boring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, Cash. So thanks for sharing all this. There are a lot of information, a lot of knowledge, but there are also that wisdom part. <laughs> We're just going through all this, which is great. I like it very much. Thank you again. Good luck with your product and the company. And yeah, see you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.